good stuff, right? If you have a Bible, you can open it to James, and um, we're going to read our passage this morning as we've, uh, as we've gotten in the habit of doing before Pastor Matt comes up. Um, we have, uh, we're going to be in the beginning of chapter 2 of James. We've just finished chapter 1. We've just talked about God's Word being a sort of a mirror that we, that we look at and see ourselves in and um, should be changed by. So um, as we read chapter 2 of James, verses 1 through 13, we'll put it up on the screen if you don't have it in front of you. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So I think one of the easiest things um, in life, is to see what's wrong with the way things are, right? You talk to people, uh, people around you, uh, yourself. uh, There's no shortage of people saying, you know, if things were like the way I would do it, we wouldn't have a lot of the same problems we have nowadays, right? It's really easy for us to look at a particular situation, for a job, at our community, and say, "Mm, this is what's wrong with it. Particularly, it's really easy if you're new somewhere into something, right? If you're experiencing it for the first time. Uh, It's it's easy to do this because being new gives you a new perspective that lends itself to seeing the flaws in the system. Um, You can see how the status quo is actually hurting things, that it's actually not doing what people think it's doing. And and what's more is you can see this so much more clearly than it seems that people that have been there for quite some time, because you don't know all the reasons why it's that way. You don't know how it got started or why people did it a certain way or the changes that were made. You just know how it is and what it's doing now. As easy it is in life to see what's wrong with the way things are, Probably the hardest thing in life to do is ever actually change any of it, right? Uh, that you can see it, you can diagnose it, and yet 
find out that uh, as much as we talk about it, as much as we might like to do something about it, uh, things never really seem to change all that much. And one of the things we find out is that things are the way that they are because usually someone's benefiting from it. Um, being a parent has shown this reality to me. Um, it, well, it's made it painfully, and I really emphasize painfully, uh, painfully obvious uh, just how, how this works in, in so many ways in our lives and in so many subtle ways. Um, I, I've realized as a parent that if you want to make your life a whole lot easier, if you want to avoid 90% of the parenting that you find yourself having to do on a daily basis, all you need to do is just simply buy two of everything. If you were to buy just one extra and had two of everything, 90% of what you find yourself doing as a parent would be eliminated, right? Because, I mean, the thing we all know, kids don't like to share. Am I right? Like, so it, it, was, it was this last summer, and um, it, it was our son Wesley's second birthday, and we were talking about uh, gifts to get him. And uh, we had settled on uh, this uh, one thing that we got him was uh, a guitar. And we were going to buy him this guitar. And uh, so we were talking about it, and we were looking out online. And I was about to check out and buy it. And I, and I looked at Hannah, and I said, so you want to buy two of these, right? And uh, I said, because you know what's going to happen. He's going to unwrap it. He's going to be excited. And then his sister is going to be just as excited. And she's going, and I was like, we can buy two of them. We can say they're both for him. But, you know, we know how this thing works, right? And, like, he got two guitars. Like, what a rich kid, right? And then all this stuff and, and everything. And, she, and without even thinking, my wife just goes into this tirade about how we're not buying two of everything. We're not going to live our lives that way. These kids can learn to share. They need to, need to get over it and be able to get along together. I am not going to be held hostage my entire life buying both of them the same thing until they move out of the house. I was like, okay. I'm here, I'm here to tell you this morning we should have bought two. Because, um, man... Like, you know, right? Well, I mean, we all know that the norm, we just operate in my house under the assumption that the status quo is that our kids are selfish. And, and it's not even selfish in like a way that makes sense. It's selfish that like they picked up this thing that I didn't even know existed, but because they have it, I want it now, right? And, and so we work hard in our house at creating a new status quo. We want to change this. We, we want to break them out of the habits and, and the ways of thinking that lead to the selfishness. So we preach, we teach, we yell share in our house. Like it is when we hear something going on in another room, the first word we yell in is share. Like we don't even know what's going on in there. We're just like share guys, share, because we figure that's 90% of everything that goes into it. And, and, and there's times that we feel like we're making progress in the saying, especially the times that Eden has a toy and Wesley's walking behind her saying, share, 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 sissy, share. Like, that's just like, yes, he's getting it. And so, like, we look at Eden and we're like, okay, Eden, like, your brother's asking to share. Can you share the toy? And then we enter into a little discussion with her and she begrudgingly gives it to him. And she's like, okay. And we're like, oh, it's happening. This is working. We're creating a new status quo. Until two seconds later, that Eden turns right back around and says, share, share, share. And Wesley runs off into the other room and does not share, right? Like, 
all of that work, all of that time. And so then what happens is our lives devolve into a 45-minute hostage negotiation until we decide that the McDonald's toy is not worth it and we just throw it away. Like, it's just... It's like, so, like, really, we've, I've discovered that we could make our lives a whole lot easier either by buying two of everything or just throwing a bunch of stuff away, like one or the other. But we know, like, so the thing is, is that we can see what's wrong. We, we know that our kids are prone to be selfish. We can see that that's the status quo. We want them to share more, and yet it's so difficult. It's so difficult to change that. It's so difficult to change the deeply ingrained habits and, and ways of thinking that, that lead to that. We, we, we know this, we can see it in our kids with something as simple as like sharing toys, but, but we know this in our own lives, in the worlds that we live in, right? We, we see things that are wrong, and, and we, we can identify them, we can talk about them, and people can agree with us, and yet things don't seem to change all that much. James is writing about Something just like this. Uh, he, he sees something, something that everybody kind of knows is off and wrong. And, and it's the way that the world works and the world sees people and the world relates to people. And yet he sees it going on in the church. He, he explains, as, as Pastor I just read, that uh, there's a situation. It, it was a church gathering of some sort. And um, people aren't really in agreement over if it was like a, a gathering like this or if it was some court proceeding or whatever. But it was Christians in one place together. And he says that there's a rich man and a poor man. And, and they're both there at the same time and they both need a seat. And just simply based on the fact that one is rich and one is poor, they decided, you know, this guy deserves an actual seat. And this guy, not as important, not really worth it. And so you can just, you can sit at our feet. Jesus is like, it's happening. Like the status quo that the world has and the, and the way the world sees people and the way the, way the world sizes them up and the way the world decides who is, is more important and who's worth more, it, it's happening in the church. And we know it's normal. Because we, we see it happen in our own lives. It, we know it's normal to play favorites. Uh, to look at people and, and say, I, I, I would really like to know them, them maybe not as much. And, and James, it, it, he's not acting like, oh, hey, wow, I can't even believe this is going on. He's like, oh, yeah, the, I, I can see this happening. And so really it seems like here at the start of chapter 2, James is just simply saying, okay, guys, if you're going to do this thing, which is a pretty natural thing to do, yeah, we see this a lot in the world, you just need to know what is really happening when you play favorites in this way. You, you need to see the, the depth of, of what you're doing here. And so James starts off in verse 1, he, he wants the church, he, he wants those he's writing to, to know that when you play favorites, you're lowering standards. Playing favorites lowers standards. And it's not necessarily in the way we might be prone to think it is. He says there in verse 1, he says, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He says, show no partiality. And just what we read, partiality, just, uh, don't play favorites, he says. Hey, my brothers, don't play favorites. Why? Not because like, it's wrong, anything like that. He says, don't play favorites because you hold faith in Jesus. James tells us that following Jesus raises the standard for how you treat people. 
that we don't get to choose to follow Jesus and have the benefits that come along with it while being allowed to treat people the way we treated them before knowing Christ. We don't get to come into the church and proclaim all of the great things about it and what it's done for us and what we get out of it and yet get to choose to keep treating people the same way we did before we came. It says you're actually held to a different standard yourself. You're held to the example of Jesus. This is what Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 2 where he writes to the church in Galatia about when he went to see the apostles to tell them what he was doing to make sure everything was all right. He says there in verse 6, he says, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Basically, Paul is saying here, to sum it up and kind of try to make sense of it really quickly for our sake, Paul's saying the way God looks at people is the way I should look at people. I, I get that we look at people, we're t- we tend to look at them based on their positions of influence, based on their titles, based on what they've done in their life. He says, just know this, God doesn't look at people that way and size them up accordingly. That's not what matters to God. And because it doesn't matter to God, it doesn't matter to me. And James is saying the exact same thing. He's saying, look, Jesus doesn't look at people this way. And so we shouldn't either. Because when we play favorites, it lowers Standards. We actually lower the standard by which we see people. And what's more is we lower the standard by which people see us. And the crazy thing about it is while we're doing this, and we're doing this to other people and then it's being done to us, this is probably the one place in our life that we want to be held to a higher standard. Let me explain why that is. We live in a day and age... Man, it feels so old to say it that way, right? Um, Back in my day, it wasn't this way. But we live in a day and age now where we are obsessed with knowing ourselves. And what's more is because we're obsessed with knowing ourselves, we're obsessed with knowing other people. And we're obsessed with knowing them in the same way that we know ourselves. And so we have all of these different ways that we try to put people into groupings, into categories that somehow will explain who they are. For instance, we have more than you could ever hope to do in your life, personality profiles coming at you from every which way. Things that are called like the DISC, the Enneagram, the Strength Finder, the Taylor Johnson, like we could talk about this stuff all day long. But we have personality profiles that are, that are supposed to show you, but then also in knowing like what, what you are, how you relate to other people. And, and, and it's really weird if you ever go to like a conference and people have all done the same personality profile because they're talking in this word language. They're like, oh, well, you're a D. Well, I'm an I, so we don't like each other. Let's like stay clear of each other, right? We don't get, oh, man, ugh, they're D, ugh, and stuff, right? We think that, that somehow this thing can describe most of everything we ever need to know about that individual. Well, we also have generational descriptions, ways that, ways that we can say a, a person grew up and, and is from this time period. And because they are from that time period, because they came up, they grew up, they were formed during a certain decade or generation, I know most of what I would ever need to know about them. We call people things like millennials, baby boomers, the greatest generation, Gen X, Gen Z. We also have cultural designations. Labels that we can put on in people and we can say, well, they're this thing. And so I know whether or not I kind of want to be around them or not. We call people things like hippie, hipster, redneck, punk rock. It goes on and on. So many ways 
that we look at people and we think that if, if we can put them into this category, we can know them better, we can describe them better. And these things can help us gain insight. I, I'm not saying, especially with personality profiles. I'm a big believer in personality profiles, so you know, don't send your hate mail elsewhere. But we're told that if we know these, we really know the person. And so we do this, right? We're like, oh, well, you're... You're, you're, you're a millennial, so I know everything about you, right? I mean, we can just say, like, when I say the word millennial, like, we're most like, oh, my gosh, they're the worst, right? And I can say that because I'm a millennial because we are the worst. Like, yeah, yeah I mean, we're, what's wrong with everything? And so, see, that's the thing, though, is, is we look at people and we look at them in these categories and we say, I know so much about them because they fit into this box. But the thing is, we don't want to be seen that way. We don't want to be known that way. We would hate to think that people put us into a box, like we're a certain personality, or we're from a certain generation, or we dress a certain way. And so because of that, they think they know everything about us, and these things put together can somehow completely describe us, and yet we know we are much more than that. We don't want to be held to such a low standard that we were born in a generation, and so we can either be written off or exalted by people. We want people to know us. We want people to know what we think, and we want to be known and judged based on what we do and how we act and our character. We want to be held to a higher standard. It's probably the one place in our life that we don't want it easy. You know this truth if you've ever applied to a job or been evaluated at a job that is based off of, in a big way, a personality profile. If you've ever applied to a job and they've had you do some kind of personality profile, what is your greatest fear? Your greatest fear is that they're going to look at what that test says about you and make a judgment about who you are without ever talking to you about it, without ever allowing yourself to describe and explain yourself. What's more is the truth is that when we hear these descriptions, these categories, as much as we might not want to, we start comparing them. We start making judgments about which is better and which is not. We can't help ourselves. And so when someone says, well, I'm a millennial, and someone says, well, I'm a baby boomer, and someone says, well, I'm the greatest generation, guess who wins? The greatest generation, right? Thanks, Tom Brokaw. Like, none of us can compare, right? You call one the greatest, everybody is less, right? It's the same reason why, like, people can't help but clicking on, like, who are the greatest, the 10 greatest basketball players of all time list, right? Because we are obsessed with ranking things and, and figuring out who is the best, even though we know that these things are ridiculous and there's no way to truly know it. We lower the standard of what we think of people, and then what's more is we start comparing them based on things that they can't even control. And so we're kind of left with this question then. Well, if, if, if labeling people in this way and describing them this way and, and, and looking at and acknowledging what makes us different, it can lead into this very unhealthy relationship where we get to the church, like in James Day, where we can't help ourselves but say, oh yeah, you go here and you go here. Do, do we do that and risk having the same done to us, or do we just pretend that everybody's the same? Is, is this second option, just acting like everybody's the same and how crazy that idea is, is that what James is talking about where he says no partiality? 
Don't play favorites. Just act like everybody's the same. James says, no, that's not what you do either. Because he goes on in verse 5, where he plays this out, and he says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? The most important thing to know about anybody, the thing that you need to understand about any person you ever look at, the thing that the generation they were born in doesn't even begin to comprehend, the very thing that a personality profile will not dig deep enough to unearth is that every single person needs Jesus in the exact same way. And if we operate and work under that understanding, then we are all equal, James says. That we can acknowledge our differences and the things that make us different and yet understand that where it really counts, we are the same. And this isn't just an initial need of Jesus. It is a constant need of Jesus because no matter how much you needed Jesus the day you came to saving faith in him, you need Jesus just as much today to remain in him. And you will need him just as much tomorrow because you never get better at this thing. It's only by him and his grace, and the only way you have that is staying connected to him. And this is what Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 3. We're going to look at this verse here in just a little bit. But this is what Paul is saying where he starts talking about the divisions that constantly divide us. And he says that these have been done away with in Jesus. And it's not just initially. It's not like, oh, hey, you, you look at everybody as the same, like when you come to Jesus, and then you start building these things back in. Paul says, when you know Christ... You know that you need the same thing that everybody else does. The ways that you are tempted to look at people and put them above you or below you, those do not matter as much as the fact that you need Jesus and they need Jesus in the same way. It may look different. The way that these things work themselves out in our lives definitely look different, and yet we all need the same thing for the same reason, James is saying. And it is what is most important. And the church in James's time, here's the thing. It was plain favorites. It is man, a rich man and a poor man. And, and they're looking at them and they're saying, you're worth this seat of honor and you not so much, so you can sit at our feet. They were playing favorites based on things that these guys could do nothing about. In James's day, there was no such thing as upward mobility. You were born a slave, you died a slave. You were born rich, you died rich. It was nothing that you did to gain it, to deserve it. It's a pretty low standard to hold people to. To look at them and size them up based on things that they really have no control over in their life. I mean, really what it comes down to is the church in James's day was expecting very little from people. And when we treat people this way, when we see them as lesser than us based on whatever it is we might emphasize and come up with as a way to judge them, it actually ends up being a self-fulfilling prophecy of how we treat people. It ends up being how they are, right? Because we all know in our lives that if people have already made up their mind about us, we might try for a while to change their mind and 
convince them that, you know, it's not that way and that's not really who we are. But at some point, we're going to get tired and worn out and broken over trying to do that. And so what do we end up doing? We throw up our hands and say, you know what? If that's how they're going to see me, I might as well just be that way, right? When we see people in this way, then we play favorites. We lower the standard in such a way that we expect so little from them that they end up only living up to the low bar we've set. James says God looks at what really matters. He expects more from us than are you rich or poor, are you educated or not, do you have a certain status, a certain position. God expects people to love him. That is the high standard he holds us all to. It's the standard we're held to because it's the only thing that matters. It's the only thing that makes a difference. It's the only thing that's eternal. Everything about us, else about us can change. Everything about, else about us fades away. But whether or not we love God is the thing that lasts. And so it's the standard he holds us to. It's the standard he holds us to because when we love God, all of those other things, they come into balance. They come into right order and relationship with him and with us and with other people. You might be rich, but you may have gotten, gotten that way by cheating the system and cheating other people. So guess what? When you come under the lordship of Jesus Christ, those things get sorted out. And so it doesn't matter that people can look at the surface and look at the result and say, oh, that's great. Oh, we want that. It matters who you are and why you do what you do. And that's what God looks at. He's raised the bar. He raises the standard. But when we treat people differently based on these lesser things, when we treat people differently because of things that they cannot change, like what their personality profile is, what generation they were born into, we're saying we don't expect much of them. But we're also saying we don't expect Jesus to do much in them. But really, Jesus can't change much about who they've been since birth. And ultimately, when we live our lives that way, that we're not expecting much, we're not expecting much to be done, we get to a place that we say it's probably better if we just don't have much to do with them. James says, playing favorites lowers the standard, and it is a dangerous thing because it brings us to a place where we see people as not even worth our time, not worth our love. We see people as lesser than ourselves. We see people that are beyond the grace of Jesus for him to do something amazing in their life and through them. He says, it's not just that we lower the standard, though. James says that playing favorites also maintains the status quo. That thing that we can all see is wrong and needs to be changed. He says, when you play favorites, when you judge people and make a hierarchy around you, you're actually maintaining the very thing that you can see is wrong in our world. If we go back there to verse 5 and just kind of pick that up again, he says, listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? James makes it a point here to emphasize the fact that this world that we live in, it has a set system. 
It has a way of doing things. It has a status quo. And one of the things that it does so often is it judges people. And it judges people based on some pretty ridiculous things when we take into account what Jesus has done. It judges people based on their economic status. It judges people based on whether they're a man or a woman. It judges people based on so many other things that we can point to. And James says Jesus has overthrown that very system. Just the simple statement where he says, through loving God, those who are poor in the world, rich in faith, they will be heirs of the kingdom. That the poor can actually become heirs. That the poor have something to claim. They they have something to look forward to. They have something that they will inherit. James says in Jesus, things are different. The Beatitudes is actually Jesus' declaration of the overthrow of the kingdom of this world. The Beatitudes is Jesus totally spelling out, right, that this is my kingdom and this is how it's different from this world. He shows his kingdom is the complete opposite. That this world system has values that it operates by and it's not God's values. it's, It's values of oppression, that are meant to keep people beneath a weight of judgment that they can never overcome. It's a system where we feel like we are constantly being judged and sized up. I know most of us, we can relate to the idea of feeling like no matter what good we've done before, we're only as good as our last fill-in-the-blank. You're only as good as your last day. You're only as good as your last sale. You're only as good as your last patient. You're only as good as your last sermon. And no matter what good we can point to before, if we do not hack it this time, we're going to be judged, we might be found unworthy, and we're going to be cast out. And that's because the system of this world, it is meant to break us down and to leave us hopeless. And James says that when the church looks at people as more deserving than other people, when we play favorites like what's going on here, we actually become maintainers of the system. The, the one that we look at and we say, things need to change, this isn't right, that people are treated this way, people are seen this way, that, that when we say, yeah, you belong here and you belong here, that I would rather know you than you, I don't see much value in getting to know you better. We keep that system and that status quo moving. He actually talks about, he, he, gives a, he gives a specific example. He says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you in the court? And the, and the thing that um, James is talking about here is in his day, um, there was the, the rich liked taking people to court. Because courtroom proceedings are, back then are not what we think of today. Today, in America, we have this thing where you're presumed innocent until proven guilty, Right? And so the idea is if, if, I, if I haven't done anything wrong, I don't have anything to hide, and that will be shown and spelled out in a courtroom. Well, that's not the way it was set up back then. In Roman culture, everything was built on honor. And the thing about honor was it wasn't something like in the medieval times where it's like, oh, if I can be a knight and do these heroic things, I can gain honor. No, it was just like honor could be bought. And so it was the rich people that normally bought honor. And so they would do things like they would buy a fountain in the middle of the town, and then they would put a plaque on it so everybody knew that they bought it. 
and that would give them honor. And what's more is they would put like all of their titles and everything they had ever done and what other stuff they had bought for the town and that sort of thing so that people would think well of them and say, oh, that's a good guy. Like, yeah, I know him. He did this thing and he did that thing. And yeah, he's pretty good. Didn't matter what they were really like. It would buy them honor. And so in a courtroom setting, the way that things were judged was whoever had the most people that would show up and say, no, they're a good person. They have this honor. They've done these things. That's the person that would win. They wouldn't even talk about the reason why you were in the courtroom. They wouldn't talk about the fact that, like, they ran you over with their chariot. Like, no, that's not what's important. So they would, like, yeah, so... Rich people loved pulling poor people into the courtroom because they knew every time, I'm going to win, and it doesn't matter what I did. And James says, this is what's happening out in the world. People are judged based on this thing that they can buy, and it means nothing about them. And it's probably the least important thing that you could come to think of and how to describe a person and who to say who's worthy of what. And yet you guys are doing the same thing. He says, you're protecting and furthering the oppression of others instead of bringing the kingdom of God into the world as it is in heaven. Jesus has undone all of this. And he's offering freedom for everyone that will accept it. And what's more is he's offering a chance to undo the status quo, to create a new norm, to instill new habits and ways of thinking. But James says, but the thing is, you need to understand, too, that you can't hope to upend the system and change it without him. That you can't just see what's wrong. We can only ever go so far, James is saying, because we're trapped by the categories of this world. We only know certain things. In Galatians 3, what I referenced earlier, Paul says, he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither... No male and female. And if you stop right there and don't read the rest of it, right? If, James, if Paul were to say that and stop there, you'd be like, okay, Paul, well, what is there? Like, how else do you describe people, right? Like, if, if we throw all this out, it's just, it is that, like, everybody's the same. That's ridiculous. That sounds like, you know, a place we don't want to go, you know, politically, Paul. So um, let's, like, stay away from there. Like, yeah, there's, there's Jew and Greek. There's slave and free. Like, yeah, we, they, it's not great. Yes, we do treat people differently based on what category they're in, but what else do we have, right? Paul says in Jesus, there's something else. He is broken out of the system of this world. And so what you need to know is exactly what we talked about earlier. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. There's a new category, Paul says. Amen. And it breaks out of the status quo. And it, but apart from Jesus, all we have left are those other designations. And so we can reorganize them. We can try to reorient them. But only with Jesus do you, do you have the option of breaking out of them. But when we play favorites, we separate ourselves from Christ because he does not do that. And so we become maintainers of the status quo. We actually end up working against and undoing the very thing that Jesus has done. Which is why James adamantly tells us here to wrap it up. The playing favorites ultimately increases pain. It doesn't just lower standards. It doesn't just maintain the status quo. Playing favorites increases pain. In the lives of people. It says there in verse 4. It's kind of been sandwiched in between a lot of the stuff we've been talking about. It says when you judge people based on. They were judging people as rich or poor. When you judge people based on these labels. And these categories of this world. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves. 
and become judges with evil thoughts. He knows that the inclination, he knows that our inclination will be to think that playing favorites isn't that big of a deal. I mean, it doesn't sound that bad, right? Like playing favorites. Like who doesn't do that? I mean, if I say, who's your favorite kid? Somebody's face comes to mind, right? Like we all have our favorite, you know? So I did that with Hannah this week and I was like, so who's your favorite kid? And she's like, I don't think that way. And I was like, you're such a liar. Gosh, uh, it's obviously, it's obviously the boy. So He says, so he actually calls it what it is. It's not just playing favorites. When you do this and you operate this way, you judge. It is judgment. And it does not matter how insignificant you might think it is. It's not that big of a deal. Everybody does it. James says, it's a sin. It's evil. So we can't just point to all the things that we say we do right while ignoring this one. James says. That's the whole point of verses 8 through 13. James says, it's ridiculous to say you keep the law because you don't commit adultery, but then you go and murder. You're obviously breaking the law. So he says, if the law is to love your neighbor as yourself and you judge them in a way that you yourself don't want to be judged, guess what? You're breaking the law. It's a sin. And he tells us it hurts other people. It, It increases pain. Because in verse 13, he says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Judging people in the way James is spelling out here lacks mercy. It damages people in ways that we can't even begin to comprehend. Because it hurts them in the same way that the world is hurting them. And what's more is it comes from the one place it shouldn't be coming from. I was trying to think about like what this could look like and a good way to describe what it, you know piling on to people something that they already are burdened with, and uh, what, what came to mind in thinking about this was uh, one of my favorite uh, comedians is Jim Gaffigan, and uh, if you know Jim Gaffigan, uh, he he's great. And so uh, he he uh, one time uh, a little while ago he had a fifth child, and he said people come up to him all the time and be like, "What's it like having like a fifth kid?" And he goes, "Well." The way I like to describe it is, you know, imagine you're drowning, and then someone hands you a baby. Like, that's what it's like to have a fifth kid. You've already got way too much of it, and uh, here's some more. Um, it's that very idea of why we're stopping at three. Um, and so, the fact of the matter is, people in the world are drowning because the system of the world, the status quo is judging them, sizing them up, and then deeming them unworthy of others. They're drowning. And so what's it like when they come into this place, when they come into the church, these people that call themselves Christians, and they're handed more of what is already weighing them down and killing them? It increases their pain in ways that we can't even begin to comprehend. He wants the church to know not only does it increase their pain, but it increases the pain of the church, of, of those that are actually doing this. He says you're, you're treating people one way while wanting to be treated differently. And you just need to know it doesn't work like that. It doesn't get to go that way. So you're, just so you know, James is telling them you're, you're, you're perpetrating a system that has no regard for 
you or for mercy towards you. When you're hurting others in this way, you're actually hurting yourself. Because one day, the tables will be turned and you will be judged in this way. And you will be the one told, why don't you just sit at our feet? When we fail to see others as God sees them, when we fail to hold them to the standard, when we perpetuate the status quo of this world and we do this to people, we find that our lack of mercy has a way of turning around and finding ourselves in our own life lacking mercy. And so it's why James is so adamant in saying here to us, to his readers, Playing favorites, no matter how insignificant it might sound, it's a sin. And like all sin, we need to understand and know it's understandable, but it isn't acceptable. Jesus tells us it's understandable that this would happen. It's the norm. It's it's the status quo of the world you've come from. It it makes sense that the way of thinking and the way of operating, the habits that you've been built in you over a lifetime, that that they're still there. But just, just know that while I can see why it's there and I can see why it's happening, it's not okay. And we can't look around and say, other people are doing it. This has been done to me. It's not that big of a deal. It's just between me. I don't even say these things out loud. When we see people as different than us, when we associate with them differently because they're part of this group or not part of that group, when we see them and we sum them up by some label that doesn't even begin to describe the things that are most important about them, primarily their need for Jesus being the same need for Jesus that we have, he says, I get why you do it. I get why it's easy, but it's not okay. It's not okay. He says, the great thing is, though, Jesus has done something about that. Not just for some far-off time, but he's done something about it now. 